0: on may 12 2017 several hospitals within the united kingdom were hit with the WannaCry ransomware suddenly hospitals had to revert to paper records and manually take x-rays from one lab to another surgeries were postponed until the services could be recovered if they could be recovered often when we think of ransomware attacks we think of large corporations or maybe the colonial pipeline yet hospitals They've been victimized, too, even in the United States. On December 18, 2022, the Hospital for Sick Kids in Toronto, Ontario, was hit with a lock-bit ransomware. Fortunately, the attack only encrypted some systems. Yet, Sick Kids reported that the incident caused delays in receiving lab and imaging results, and it resulted in longer patient wait times. And if you've ever had a sick child in your arms, delays, they're not good.
1: And the Hospital for Sick Children says it's dealing with a cybersecurity incident that's affecting several network systems, including some of their phone lines.
0: SickKids says a system failure called the Code Gray went into effect on Sunday night, prompting the activation of the Incident Command Center. The hospital says patient care is unaffected and there's no evidence that personal or health information has been impacted. Chalk 24 is above the hospital for us this morning, giving us that bird's eye view. Officials say third-party experts have now been called in to help resolve the situation. This attack was diabolical. To attack a children's hospital is just beyond the pale. Then, on New Year's Day, the LockBit ransomware gang released a free decryptor for the Hospital for Sick Kids, saying one of its members had violated the rules by attacking a healthcare organization. Our sick kids' hospitals recovering from a second cybersecurity incident in recent weeks, this after being offered a solution to its problem from the very people that carry out these kind of attacks understand that Lockbit is a ransomware as a service provider. In other words, the operators of Lockbit create and maintain the product and then sell it to others to use. To make money, Lockbit operators keep up to 20% of all the ransom payments and the rest goes to the affiliate. Apparently, the attacker behind the sick kid's attack crossed some ethical line. So ransomware typically gets on the network through phishing attacks. The point is, once it's on the network, which in many cases is logically flat, What's to stop it from infecting everything? And with the introduction of new IoT devices, some of which the IoT department has never seen before, it seems that the risk of malware getting on the network might be even higher. This then is the story of increasing risks of IoT devices to healthcare organizations and what those organizations should do to mitigate them. I'm Robert Pomosi. this is Error Code.
1: Full name is Mohammed Okas. Feel free to call me Mo.
0: I spoke with Mo just after Sector 2022, the largest security conference in Canada. I like Sector because it often has, well, very interesting talks, such as the one Mo gave on securing IoT and healthcare.
1: My official title is uh, Principal Solutions Architect, specializing in the healthcare vertical for cybersecurity company Armist. Essentially, the global lead uh, for the architects, uh, focusing specifically on the healthcare vertical. And prior to Armist, I was working for a major Canadian healthcare system worked there for about eight to nine years helping build the information security program from the ground up and uh you know bringing in I guess establishing the foundational security elements where you're bringing in technologies whether it's email gateways endpoint security uh some configurations on the firewalls things like that and then it just evolved into more so on the governance side the compliance side and then uh privacy side as well so uh Always welcome having a conversation with healthcare clients and it's just a passion that fuels me. So
0: one of the things Mo and I talked about was what he called medical device profiles.
1: I like to call them device profiles because I think there's much more to a device than just the fact that it's a laptop, right? So what constitutes a profile is not only the form factor, but what's its role in the organization, right? What's its how is it being used? What's the context? What's the criticality? To me, all of these things constitute what a device profile is. So uh, if you're looking at it from a legacy perspective, device profiles are much simpler. You have a laptop, it's probably a- accessing some uh, database. Maybe it's using Microsoft Office and what have you. Now we're seeing that they're getting a bit more complex because you have different IoT devices that are being used for different roles that have different cat- criticalities that you know what that are more important to certain departments that aren't important to others. Uh, And then each one of these different device profiles has specialized properties, specialized mechanisms. So a lot of different things to understand what makes a device a device, especially in this day and age.
0: Networks in healthcare facilities perhaps aren't the most segmented. Now with IoT devices, it becomes worse as these devices are added to an open network, often without the IT administrators knowing.
1: So from a device profile perspective, they are probably the most diverse device ecosystem that we have. Uh, if you look at it holistically, it's enterprise devices, des- desktops, laptop servers, it's IoT devices, uh, whether it's things like boy phones, TVs, patient experience devices, it's medical devices, obviously, infusion pumps, MRIs. And then one of the ones that always gets overlooked tends to be the building management slash OT devices. So your engineering workstations, your HVAC systems, your uh, you know sensors, door badges, parking sensors, and all that. So really, it's probably the most diverse ecosystem that we have.
0: You can think of hospitals in terms of any modern office. You have an enterprise system of desktops, laptops, of course, and you have your your bring-your-own-device with tablets and mobile. However, with hospitals, you have a lot of specialized equipment. So I would imagine that there would be a lot more device profiles to consider. And I would further imagine that following InfoSec best practices, each of these would be segmented on the network.
1: I'm not sure I would say that hospitals are segmented per se, because that's actually a key conversation that we're having with healthcare organizations. When we're talking to healthcare organizations and we talk about it from a network perspective, healthcare systems traditionally are probably the flattest networks that exist as well.
0: Whoa. I'd always heard that surgical theater was separated entirely from, say, the pharmacy or other business operations.
1: So you are correct. They might be separated physically. Maybe they're a different ward. Maybe they're a different hospital campus, a center of excellence, and what have you. From a network view, uh, just because it's located in a different building doesn't mean can't access the other devices that are in a completely separate hospital campus. Logically, on the network, they're all pretty much equal.
0: So this is important to note. Logically, all the devices, whether the cash register in the pharmacy or the MRI used for patients, ultimately, they're all in the same network.
1: Uh, there's no security rules between the medical devices and the enterprise device they're pretty much just all accessible to each other and that's why we're seeing in the industry when there's a cyber attack all the healthcare systems get taken down because it can infect let's say an hr person's laptop and it can very easily laterally spread to the emr uh, application servers it can spread to medical devices it pretty much has full access on the network so that's why i mentioned that i'm not sure if i would call them segmented from that perspective but absolutely would definitely say they're diverse
0: Ah, so even if they're localized in a physical space, logically on the network, there's no real segmentation, which is why ransomware attacks have been, in some cases, devastating to hospitals. In other words, like the target breach, an HVAC system at the hospital could be compromised remotely, and then the attacker could use that vector to get more interesting parts of the network.
1: Even if I'm in a uh, physician's clinic and I get infected, I can very easily, as a, uh, as a malware or a... Uh... A attacker very easily move over to the main hospital campus and infect that entire network as well. So that's, that's the, the two views, physically separated, but logically they're all together.
0: So with flat networks is one problem. Another problem is the business of legacy devices. There are medical devices running older versions of operating systems and software. The whole idea of upgrades and so forth is still a challenge for medical devices.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So th- this is where it gets interesting because I think there's an angle of this that people aren't privy to. So you hit the nail on the head. One of the biggest challenges of healthcare is the fact that, hey, they're running legacy operating systems and they can be for a few different reasons, right?
0: Basically, every device in the hospital has to have an operating system, either an RTOS or a mainstream operating system. The problem is, as we discuss further, updating those systems once they've been certified by organizations such as the FDA and other regulatory bodies makes it difficult for the IT staff to stay on top of patches. Mo provides an example.
1: Let's just take a mainstream operating system. Let's ignore the proprietary ones. So it's running Windows XP, right? Right. Now, one of the things that vendors do is they certify it as is. So this medical device, we are selling it to you, and it has the exact parameters and configuration, even from an operating system perspective, that this application can run on. Now, you're not allowed to install any patches. You can't upgrade the operating system because you know what? We can't guarantee that it'll work as intended. It may cause patient harm. It may cause some, you know, so there are a lot of different implications and the criticality and the severity of that is very high. So, do not make any changes to these devices. So, you're kind of handcuffed with those.
0: So that million-dollar MRI, it might be running Windows XP. Why? Because when it went through certification, that was the OS of choice. Well, it's been several years now. And in fact, Microsoft has discontinued its support for Windows XP. Yet, that's a million-dollar MRI machine still running a version of it that it had when it was certified. And there's the other part. The vendors themselves don't necessarily run with the latest version of the OS at the time they go for certification.
1: And I remember in my previous life, when we were pretty much talking about Windows 10 is when we had a vendor come out and say, okay, guys, we're now certified for Windows 7. And it takes them years to go through this process.
0: It's crazy, I know. But there's also a business side to consider as well. It costs money to keep these devices updated. In most cases, you have to buy a brand new machine. Now,
1: from the challenges of a security team, I recall I was was, uh, working with the pharmacy department. And we said, hey, there's a massive security initiative to go through the hospital, and make sure, Hey, we don't have any outdated Windows XP systems or anything like that. Now you have these massive drug cabinets. They're dispensed throughout the hospital, not only pharmacy, but your ER departments, etc. So let's say there's 20 or 30 of them. Now the pharmacy department comes back and says, well, we can't upgrade it. We talked to the vendor. We can only replace them. To replace each one is a hundred thousand. Now we have 30 of these. It's going to be $3 million. So this is a mandate from the security department. So, hey, security department, are you gonna pony up the three million? Because we're not gonna spend that three million. It's, it's not broken for them. Totally different conversation at this point. Security team doesn't have three million to upgrade 30 devices. So now it becomes a lot more about, okay, compensating controls, figuring out how we can secure these devices. But that cost factor I think is an element that's missing from the conversation with security teams that they just don't understand as fully as they should.
0: So I'm curious, how did this get locked into the medical device industry where you have to be certified and then you can't touch it? You can't update it. Where did all that come from? I always thought it was an FDA rule strictly in the United States, but it sounds like it's actually more universal than all of that.
1: Yeah, I think uh, that's where the core of it may have started, but I think that's been stretched out now. Uh, Looking at it, just putting kind of my, my vendor hat on. If I have to consistently dedicate resources to testing end to end every single type of configuration change or patch or operating system update that comes out that's going to drain my resources right i need my teams to figure out how to do things better more efficiently not necessarily testing every two to three weeks that microsoft releases a patch i also don't want to be on the hook to say yep this is certified and then something goes wrong so there's a lot of liability that'll end up on the vendor if they certify something and something actually goes wrong so from that perspective i think vendors go through rigorous testing with the initial configuration and they say, you know what, this works, Uh, we don't wanna touch it because I'm not gonna spend another three months, six months, a year trying to certify it again just to have that configuration update yet again. It's just, I'm always chasing that certification process. So here it is, as is, minimize the liability, but then also guarantee the functionality of those devices.
0: So you can guess where this is going when it comes to introducing a whole variety of new IoT devices. I mean, if the hospital can't secure its legacy devices, then how are they going to secure devices that in some cases they don't even know are there?
1: Oh, 100%. And what's really interesting is when we're talking to healthcare systems, the primary problem we've seen during COVID has been right patient care capacity. And the fact that we don't, we're overflowed with COVID patients. We, we want to move out non-essential services, cancel them, push them out, figure out where we can redirect them. So to address this, hospitals pretty much took on two strategies. One is either we need more medical devices, and two, we need to accelerate a digital transformation. So telehealth services, uh, adopting the cloud, spinning up and down services however they can.
0: This is a change. Before devices were fixed and subject to compensating controls, now they can be spun up and spun down from the cloud.
1: Now, the thing with that is, and this is where I recall when I was dealing with research departments, is medical devices aren't only entering the environment in the uh, form factor or the profile that you would accept or expect rather. What do I mean by this? An ultrasound system. Before, they were easily identifiable. You have to go to RFP. You got to pull them out. Massive plastic cards, plastic wheels, screens, wires hanging down, and so on. Now vendors are actually releasing essentially peripherals that connect to an iPad and you install an application and that iPad is now an ultrasound device all through connecting a, a USB or a lightning port peripheral scanner application boom you haven't you have an ultrasound so these are the types of ways that the healthcare device ecosystem is just consistently evolving I remember back in the day research department massive cloud footprint during a time that hospitals said no to cloud 3D printers coming in, all these different types of innovative devices coming in to help uh, transform and accelerate patient care. Um, But it always poses problems for the security teams trying to keep up with that.
0: So we have this very diverse ecosystem that the hospital IT has to deal with. At this point, it's almost a graduate ID program for identifying all the devices running on a network
1: not every device is owned by it so if we if we re- rewind 15 20 years we were mentioning this laptops desktop servers all the purchasing going through it now you have the diabetes department purchasing wireless glucometers they're much cheaper and much more accessible i'm just going to go and purchase them and the only way the security team the service desk the it department's finding out they're getting a call saying hey i just need the wi-fi password what do you need that for i have these 20 devices that i just need to connect and I have a lineup of patients waiting. So I just need it, I can connect it and I can just con- continue on with my my testing.
0: Lab. Okay, so far, we've talked about the devices that IT knows about. I suspect there's even more devices that IT never hears about until something goes wrong,
1: a lot of blind spots being created. And IT teams are good, at their laptops, because there's been such a focus on it for 30, 40 50 years, right antivirus endpoint security, what have you. But The medical devices, just trying to understand how they operate, that in and of itself is just a challenging task because you need to make sure that you're not interrupting anything it needs to operate. So the security angle, now cybersecurity teams, they're starting to get tasked with securing unknown devices with unknown workflows and unknown impact. And I'm responsible for it ultimately because it's on my network, but I never purchased it. I never approved it. I don't even understand how to secure it. So it's kind of a catch-22 that we're seeing healthcare systems trying to find out the perfect balance to achieve.
0: It seems like IT should be much more involved in procurement.
1: It's funny you say that. That's actually one of the one of the things I've lived through and one of the recommendations i made, because you'd be surprised at how much just having conversations with the business can help alleviate a lot of the issues that we're seeing. One of them being you know what, cybersecurity, IT, whatever it may be, needs to insert itself at the beginning of the procurement process, even if it's just a line item. that Have you engaged the IT slash cybersecurity team? Check. Yes, I have. If you haven't, then you know what, let's explain this project to that team. Let's get sign off from them. Same thing with the project committee. There needs to be additional representation just to foster that relationship and enable the conversations between the business units and the security teams.
0: Obviously, having been in the industry for many, many years, Mo must have some good war stories to share.
1: I do. There are, so I'll put it this way. I'm not going to mention names. What I'll say is because I've done a lot of consulting engagements, I've engaged a lot of healthcare clients. uh, The anecdotes that I have, I'm not going to say they're firsthand from working at the organization because you can look me up on LinkedIn and find out where I work. But I think first and foremost is always going to be ransomware. At the top of the list, right? Ransomware became mainstream, especially WannaCry uh, 2017 or what have you, which, in my opinion, for the cybersecurity industry, was a good thing in the sense that it became top of mind for everybody, not only the IT teams but board members, CFOs, presidents. They had such a major focus and prioritized cybersecurity. It really uh, catapulted us forward than trying to manually have those conversations with teams that simply didn't care or weren't interested. Why are you having this conversation with me? The board doesn't care. This is your job. You take care of it.
0: Unfortunately, it takes a few headline ransomware attacks to get more resources for the IT department. Sounds like hospitals are no different.
1: Ransomware is interesting because hospitals can invest millions of dollars in technology and the weakest link will still be a person opening an email. And This is a nurse on the unit. This is a physician that, you know what? They're not as uh, familiar with certain technologies where it's December, somebody sent them a Christmas card, let me open it up and see what it is, right? Phishing emails are getting much more creative. So we've had somebody just browse a forum and one of the ads on their sites ended up loading ransomware, and boof, the hospital's down. And when you see the amount of resources that get, dedicated to resolving a ransomware incident, it might only be in the headlines for a day or two because, you know what, hospital services were back up in a few hours or after a day. But the cleanup efforts, the the post mortem, the prevention, the analysis, this goes on for weeks and months. And it ties up resources over time for 24 hours. Essentially, you're working overnight, right?
0: So ransomware, well, that's certainly high profile. But there's also the day-to-day business as well.
1: Then there's the privacy breaches that don't make the news as often as they did. And I remember being involved in a privacy breach, and it was essentially drop everything. Let's focus on this. And I was very surprised that a year later, we had a new uh, privacy analyst, and they're asking me about some questions that what have you. And this is still regarding the privacy incident that happened a year ago. So you already have tasked teams that have so much to do and then something like this happens or something like a log for shell or even Adobe releasing a critical patch is an emergency change that happens. You essentially have to drop everything you're doing immediately. Make sure you're patching. Make sure uh, you're addressing any of the vulnerabilities that come out. It's very, very disruptive. Then it becomes very difficult to work with all the different teams if you're always constantly doing fire drills. Hey, infrastructure team, drop everything you're doing. We need to patch for log for shell hey, Death team, drop everything you're doing. We need to patch for Adobe. It gets very hard to keep their attention, especially for the projects that you need to advance your security posture.
0: As we heard at the beginning, hospitals are still a target for ransomware. But I thought there might have been a truce among ransomware people that it's not cool. We're not going to do that. We'll just go after, say, Colonial Pipeline.
1: Oh, man, I wish there was a truce. Um, you know, I think at the beginning of COVID, there was a bit of a truce where it was a bit of a gentleman's agreement maybe that said, hey, you know what, let's not go after uh, healthcare systems because they're taxed uh, with, with folks and all that stuff. But I think at some point they said, you know what, the truce is off. It's been a month or two. Now we got lab uh, systems that are getting a lot of money to develop vaccines. So it was actually those lab centers and those, um, those research centers, the vaccine development centers that were now being targeted because – you're getting grants of 10, 15, 20 million, and you need to get this done. This is time sensitive. All of a sudden you're walking in and it's encrypted. You're probably gonna pay up.
0: Certainly during the worldwide pandemic, you would think that ransomware operators would not attack healthcare systems, unless it was collateral damage from other more widespread attacks.
1: We did have a spike of ransomware or increases ransomware yet again during COVID. And it was related to exploits that were targeting Microsoft Office 2010. And that's how they they were getting into systems. They were leveraging vulnerabilities from a decade ago and they were getting great success through that. So that was very mind boggling that the one of the most basic things of security hygiene, patching, updating, and so on, 10 years later, we still haven't patched things that were actively exploited years ago. And now that attackers are just kind of revisiting whatever old tools they want, they're seeing success out of it still. And it was interesting because I actually read another article uh, for another healthcare system internationally where the attackers exploited their exchange server and they were in their environment for a few weeks, um, caused a ransomware attack. And a few weeks later, that same exchange server through the same vulnerability was compromised again. So, you have a healthcare system that was attacked, never bothered patching or what have you. Maybe they got sidetracked. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. But the fact that you got exploited twice for the same exact thing, that's unacceptable.
0: So, WannaCry affected systems in the UK because they were running Windows 7. How common is that?
1: Honestly, if I went into a healthcare system and I didn't find any old PCs or old pieces of software, uh, eyebrows raised there's something definitely wrong here that is the expectation whenever I go in you a hundred percent I am putting my career on the line I'm putting my money on the line whatever it is you will always find legacy system um, now what's interesting here is you're absolutely right uh, WannaCry wasn't only Windows XP it was Windows 7 and it spanned that entire uh, the Windows uh, operating systems at the time including servers and so on but When I go into healthcare systems, they spend a lot of resources trying to keep up, right? We got to give credit where the credits due. There's a lot of efforts here and they will migrate all their servers for Server 2003, Server 2008, to Server 2019, whatever the latest version is, but they're migrating what they know about. When I do an analysis in their environment, I'm like, Hey, I know you guys spent dedicated all your infrastructure resources for six to nine months just doing this but we just found 15 to 20 additional servers running server 2003. Oh, well that turns out that's an application server that the vendor migrated off of, but we never, we didn't know about it. The vendor never decommissioned it and it's just been running.
0: Right, so how do hospitals keep up with the vendor changes or if that vendor goes out of business? This starts to get into supply chain issues, I would think.
1: So ignore the cost element of this, right? All the technical debt that's created Just looking at it from a vulnerability perspective that is huge that is huge and that's the thing that i think healthcare systems are now starting to realize is all the efforts we've been doing these aren't assets that we know about but there are a ton of assets out there and the majority of the network now are assets that they don't know about when i spoke with the healthcare system hey give me an estimate how many assets do you think you have Eh, Ten thousand, maybe 15 okay You do an asset discovery and they find out they have 100,000, 150,000. So it's not we're undershooting it by, you know what, we're off by 10%. No, you guys are off by 60, 70, 80%. And that is a big problem.
0: So we've talked about the legacy systems that are in the hospitals today, but now IoT is bringing in new technologies. And so you have the challenge of having like Zigbee and Bluetooth low energy. Are hospitals attempting to incorporate that? Or is this a phone call to the IT department? It's like, hey, how do I get my Zigbee to cooperate? And you say, we have Zigbee.
1: Uh, more often than not, that's the phone call to the IT department. I think we've we've gotten to a point where healthcare systems, let's say five years ago, very resistant to change. But now, what we're seeing is the speed of innovation of devices is starting is meeting the speed of adoption of hospitals.
0: So, here's where we're going with all of this technological modernization, the promise of the future. Sadly, we've seen how this doesn't always turn out the way we think it does when IoT is involved.
1: So, now the tricky thing with hospitals is there's a lot of talk about smart hospitals that we're building a new center and it's going to be completely smart. We're going to integrate all these things, Amazon, Echoes, and smart things automatically doing X, Y, and Z, pharmacy robots delivering drugs and so on. Well, that innovative mindset isn't always mapped to a security infrastructure or security by design approach. And the the tricky part here becomes is that because these are such large transformational projects, you're having a lot of new devices, a lot of innovation transformation happening all at once. So instead of doing it over time, like let's say a bank that, you know what, we're going to move to this smart kiosk system, this smart IP camera. Those are a large number of devices, but a single type hospital transformation projects, you're looking at 150 new types of devices in in addition to the volume. So the adoption rate um, is real for healthcare systems and security teams who are dealing with a very legacy uh, frame of mind for healthcare systems all of a sudden are dealing with a very accelerated, innovative mindset, which is good for patient care, great for patient care delivery services, but we need to be able to equip our security teams to be able to keep up with that. And right now, that's a challenge that we're seeing.
0: In this modernization process, it's already happening. If hospitals were frozen in time until recently, today they are liberated. And so IT needs to be part of that conversation.
1: And what I talked about in my presentation was there's a lot that can happen today. There's a lot of information available, but security teams don't know where to get it from. And that's where the business discussions come into place. If you look at the clinical engineering teams and the biomedical teams that are responsible for these medical devices, right? They have an inventory of their devices. It might not be a complete inventory of every single device throughout the entire hospital, but they know how many MRIs they have. They know how many diagnostic imaging machines they have. You know what? It's about moving the needle. It's about making progress. So if they have an inventory of 1,000, 2,000 devices... That's 1,000 or 2,000 devices more than the security team knows about today. So fostering that conversation, how do these devices operate? What do they do? Vendors, as well, are getting much better at providing security details. So when there's a vulnerability that gets released, there's a lot of focus on enterprise laptops and desktops, but the Philips of the world, the Siemens of the world, the they're releasing their own security advisors. So it's important that now security teams expand that scope of, of the devices they look at for risk assessment. And part of that to help enable that needs to be business level conversations.
0: So yeah, with all these devices coming in, now we're really introducing third parties more than ever. We talked about wheeling in a cart for ultrasound and having the cables trailing on the floor. So it was very much contained, very much localized to that moment. However, now everything's connected through an iPad, going through an app, going through a cloud, So there's a greater potential for leakage here.
1: hundred percent. And it does sound like you've seen my presentation because I've I've actually (laughs) talked about all these different parts. Um, Yeah, there's so much to unpack with the new types of devices, right? The cloud is one thing. Do security teams even know about what data is going to the cloud? That's number one. And when you're talking about the cloud, subsequent questions, where is that data center located? Canada has completely different privacy laws and regulations than the U.S. does. So if that data is being stored in a U.S. data center, even if that data center is a failover location, that is completely different. That needs to be assessed. Uh, What are the security controls of that cloud? I know that there was about 150,000 cameras hacked across prison systems, uh, across healthcare systems, manufacturing plants. And that wasn't because each of those 150,000 cameras were hacked. It was because they were able to sniff out the admin credential for that cloud portal. So why would I hack 150,000 cameras when I can just target that cloud portal instead?
0: So what does that mean for IoT devices?
1: So going back to the uh, to the actual medical devices changing, that whole attack surface with vendors especially, if you look at Colonial Pipeline and a bunch of these other industrial or uh, other attacks in the industries across the globe, vendor risk management is becoming a huge conversation point now. And when it comes to these innovative devices, when it comes to IoT devices, they're also being built in with always on remote access. That this device is being shipped with TeamViewer pre installed or some type of VPN or what have you. And it's not for malicious intent, right? It's for if this device goes down, I have immediate access to bring it back up or increasing our availability, better patient care delivery, and so on. But that's a huge threat because you don't know about the security posture of the vendor.
0: There's that third party attack, that supply chain attack, where a medical device vendor is compromised and that becomes the entry point into the hospital ecosystem. So
1: if they get compromised, and that workstation gets compromised, they have access into your network, they have access into a device that potentially security teams don't have enhanced monitoring capabilities into. So there's a lot of risk that comes with these always on remote access, these open VPN services. One last anecdote that I'll, I'll quickly mention. There was a lab service, a lab diagnostic service that was uh, compromised in, uh, in Canada. And that took all the different uh, lab diagnostic tests from the different hospitals over VPN. When that got compromised, I think it was a ridiculous number of like 70% of Ontario uh, Ontarians. Their data was compromised. So we're also seeing that attackers, why should I target individual healthcare systems when I can target the vendors that have access into all these areas? And hence why vendor risk management is becoming such a big uh, topic of conversation
0: now and then there's the example of the security camera attack this was a white label attack that was used to form the mirai internet of things botnet didn't really matter who the vendor was it was the chip that they had in common that got exploited so i'd imagine bringing in iot devices into a hospital environment well, the IT department's not going to have time to do a penetration test on each and every one of them. They're not going to get down to that chip level and look at the individual aspects of it. What they need is a software bill of materials, but that's a huge lift in and of itself.
1: You are 100% right, and I recall that in response to IP cameras having these uh, types of chips, the U.S. passed a bill where they banned Hikvision cameras and other manufacturers from any organization that does business with the us government so even if you're a contractor you cannot have pick vision devices and this is where it gets really challenging because not all iot camera devices are in fact the the minority of iot cameras actually come with a software bill of materials or any other detailed specification understanding what's installed how does it operate uh the different components involved and so on so this is where security teams are need to really understand the behavior of devices so that they can at least, at the very least, only allow what needs to happen, whitelist that acceptable behavior. And then if there's anything out of the norm, if there's any call outs, if there's anything to different regions, that's automatically blocked. But the tricky part here is, again, understanding the entirety of that device profile. That's something that given the legacy tool set, uh, or rather, let's call it traditional legacy, tool sets that security teams have, one of the talking points I mentioned is because we're so used to laptops, it's the tool that security teams deal with is a list of IP addresses, a list of operating systems, maybe destination IPs or ports. There's literally no information that you can glean out of what the device is, how it should be behaving and whether that communication is sanctioned or not. So from that aspect, we need to see an evolution in how we approach our risk management program because our traditional tools aren't keeping up our traditional um, scope of our risk assessment definitely needs to be expanded because we're we're not doing a good job in keeping up with the innovation.
0: So of course we can't go all this way and not provide any recommendations for people in the healthcare industry.
1: The tail end of my presentation or the last sections rather were takeaways that security teams can do today. I know there's always shiny objects that security teams get drawn to. There's a new technology. Hey, here's a new tool that can help us out. What I've seen is, and what I really recommend is, honestly, there needs to be a much better collaboration between business units.
0: And what else is Mo seeing?
1: Security teams are always looking at tools. So I mentioned the, the business uh, discussions, but I think and this was really eye-opening to me. I had a conversation with the CIO of a hospital. They were attacked by ransomware. Um, They were part of some litigation procedures and what have you. Now, because of that, they were really going through and scrubbing all their risk assessment policies or processes. Did we miss anything? Um, Are we appropriately assessing our, our laptops, desktops? Where are we with our security posture? Things of that nature. Now, when I brought up medical devices, the question I got posed back to me was, well, where in the NIST cybersecurity framework does it even talk about medical devices?
0: Hmm, that's a really good point. The National Institute for Standards and Technology, or NIST, cybersecurity framework is a voluntary guidance that was written for a wide variety of use cases. It was not industry specific, and that's been an issue over time.
1: And I was like, okay, that's interesting. Let's pull up the NIST Cybersecurity Framework. And it talks about assets, talks about systems, talks about business and organizational procedures and communications. I think along the ways, because we were so focused on enterprise devices, we have equated a device, an enterprise device rather, to an asset. And an asset is much more than that. So all of our focus has always been on the devices that the IT department has owned. But now because of this decentralized purchasing, let's say, there's a lot more assets that are critical to the business that we need to be assessing that we're not. So when I went back to that discussion, I said, well, nowhere does it say a enterprise device. It is talking about a system. What constitutes a system? You can have a server. But what about all the different medical devices that are calling home to that server? What about all the switches that are involved in transporting the lines of communication? What about the central workstation? So if you look at a system, you really need to zoom out to every single component, managed or not, that are part of it.
0: Fortunately, NIST has produced additional guidance that is industry-specific, including one for healthcare.
1: And then I did some additional research and... There's another publication that came out, the NIS um, 800-66 Revision 2, which talks about implementing the HIPAA rule, the HIPAA security rule specifically. And Revision 2 just came out in, in July. What I loved about this is the fact that when we're calling out devices with PHI, it keeps the scope broad. It literally calls out medical devices, IOMT devices, um, mobile devices, wired, wireless, as well as any other device that's processing electronic PHI. So that uh, argument or point, where well, it's not a enterprise device, well, it's not a medical device, well, it's a device that's processing PHI. That can come in the form of a tablet. That can come in the form of a uh, form of a mobile phone, a Raspberry Pi. It doesn't matter. It's processing PHI, and therefore it needs to be under a certain level of scrutiny. And that publication, I love the fact that it's so specific to healthcare. But then there's other other publications that are specific to IoT, to OT, and so on. So the cybersecurity industry, we need to get away from just using the cybersecurity framework for enterprise devices. There's a lot of special publications that have been released to keep up with all the innovations that's happening around us. We got to be better at keeping up to date with those as well.
0: I agree. And I know Mo has done some work with autonomous vehicles, and that's another life or death industry as well. You don't want to be on the freeway and have your car reboot or have something bizarre happen to you. The same way, you don't want to be in a surgical theater and have the devices change on you suddenly.
1: Oh man, I remember when I was doing that thesis uh, or research paper for uh, IOV, Internet of Vehicles, and uh, I was looking at attack models and making up uh essentially some of my own where i i noticed some vulnerabilities and what have you and io iov or internet of vehicles it is such a it seems like it's pretty advanced right we got uh, the tesla of the world automated driving and all that but really we're only starting to scratch the surface and i remember i was sitting in uh, an ethics class and professor just raised a point he said hey if there's a an elderly person on the sidewalk and there's a a five-year-old kid in front of the car and the car has to swerve which way does it go and it was just like just that just blew my mind that we have scenarios that will arise where a car has to make a decision and these are decisions that humans can't make but we're expecting the cars to make it, right and that, where does ai come in all of this how does the ai get fed how does it get developed to be able to even make a decision like that so this whole time that you and I are talking about device profiles and things of that nature, we haven't even touched the AI side of the house, right? Because AI is also getting integrated with some of these device profiles. Um, we have a hospital that we spoke to in uh, in Mexico, and they were going to leverage Amazon Echoes. Um, and you hear about certain use cases where, you know, Amazon Echoes connected to the nursing station. Hey, nurse, can you get me a blanket? Things like that. But what they were doing was we want to hear the patient's voice and do analytics on it and AI modeling so we can understand the pain threshold which was interesting because obviously a pain threshold of three to me you know might be a one to you what's a nine to you might be a ten to me so they wanted to leverage AI to standardize the pain threshold so they can elicit an appropriate response but then the question become well what if it's actually an eight but you AI triggered it as a two and you're getting to it right so there's all these different questions that come about Uh, when we're talking about these types of devices. So I think it's really, really cool. Uh, Internet of vehicles, smart devices, and what have you. I think we're only starting to scratch the surface on what we can accomplish with it. Um, I'm very, very interested. I, I don't even know if I can comment on how the security teams can come up because there's so much creativity behind this innovation. And security teams are just like, I'm sure I'm not the only one where it's, how do you even think of that? What do we even secure um, when it when it comes to all this stuff? And the tricky part is, right, you've, you've heard the saying, I'm sure the hackers, the security people have to be right 100 percent of the time. The hackers only need to get lucky once. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Right. So it's 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 really incredible how how innovative the hackers are, to be right. honest. right. So.
0: And just to stay with Otto for a moment, San Francisco is crawling with Waymo's, Zooks, and all sorts of autonomous vehicles one of the revelations from field testing is that Google announced fairly quickly that their LiDAR devices were fixed and pointed directly in front of the car in order to sense objects up ahead. But in San Francisco, you've got streets with 17 degrees of inclination. So LiDAR, they weren't pivoting up and down the way the human eye would and the human brain would. So these cars were literally blind because they were fixed. They were staring straight ahead and most cases they weren't seeing anything so that's a bit of testing that's necessary we can talk about the trolley car problem in a classroom but getting out onto the streets and trying it that's necessary too and getting out into reality they encounter these and other problems which you and i probably wouldn't think of in a classroom or in a whiteboarding session so getting back to medical it gets scary when you think that you have to train an ai for, say, the automatic robotic delivery of medicines in a hospital. You're going to have to use human beings in those tests at some point. And, well, the outcome may not always be successful.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the part that people may not realize when it comes to uh, healthcare, care, whether it's on the medical side of the house, whether it's the technology side of the house, is that there needs to be a lot of testing. There's a lot of clinical trials that happen. There's a lot of patient trials that happen. And to your point... Not all of them are successful, right? Unfortunately, some are more critical than that than others,, uh, which is why, even in healthcare, there's a long drawn out, rigorous, defined testing methodology for something like clinical trials. Security security does not have that. We don't have a standardized uh, document that new folks, right? there's we're always talking about a shortage in the cybersecurity community. There's no standardized document that a brand new analyst out of school can come and, open up and say, okay, this is what we're going to implement. The whole cybersecurity industry is not standardized on something. We have something like the NIST cybersecurity framework, great groundwork to approach it. But those are also, they're not very uh, prescriptive and descriptive to say, this is how you accomplish it. This is the tool you need to use or anything along those lines. They obviously shouldn't be too, a very rigid. But at the same time, it becomes challenging for organizations. Like when I'm having these conversations, where do I start? So those types of recommendations, that type of uh, information sharing and document development uh, is something that's really missing. That But honestly, the security side of the house can learn from the clinical side of the house. So that, that again, that business unit collaboration, I think, can go a really long way.
0: In the United States, there's HIPAA compliance for InfoSec. Is there anything equivalent in the EU or any other areas of the world that are addressing medical cybersecurity?
1: Yeah, so I've definitely seen uh, regulations and papers, but a lot of them were based on NIST, Mm -hmm. uh, because I think NIST is probably one of the better documents that we have out there. What I will say, the trend that I really love talking about is, if we move aside from the the framework for a second, we talk about legislature, right? Uh, There's the US coming out with the patch act. There's, uh, and the Patch Act being that it's mandating cybersecurity, uh, sorry, medical device manufacturers to uh, implement and have cybersecurity provisions for patching their devices, for maintaining their devices from a cybersecurity perspective. So now the onus is now on medical device manufacturers that if you're developing a device, you need to develop it with cybersecurity in mind, with the ability to patch it post-production, Uh, with the ability to, uh, with the processes defined to respond to a massive vulnerability disclosure. And this really works to the advantage of cybersecurity teams and healthcare uh, delivery organizations because I'm getting a lot more information now and a lot more support now for cybersecurity incidents and issues in the industry than I was before.
0: At the time of this recording, the Patch Act was an active bill within the United States Congress, and one that would have helped health care providers by requiring medical device vendors to support their devices by updating them. The bill passed the House of Representatives with strong bipartisan support, but the Republicans in the United States Senate defeated the bill, even when it was included in other legislation. Republicans again stripped it out of the larger bill. Because the two year term of the 117th Congress has now expired, the bill is now considered dead, unless someone in the new 118th Congress, starting in 2023, introduces it once again. The likelihood of that, however, is not great. This really is not good for the healthcare industry. Requiring something as small as software bill of material for every device in a hospital, that would be huge. Unfortunately, it's not going to happen soon.
1: Medical device manufacturers, you have to produce a software bill of materials. So if there's something like a log for a shell that impacts the industry again, well, here, I have a list of every single application library that's installed across my medical device fleet. Very easy for us to identify what's been impacted by this vulnerability.
0: Okay. Fortunately, the U.S. Congress is not the only legislative body considering this as law. If, say, Europe adopts it, that's a large enough market to get the american vendors to also begin providing it as well
1: we're seeing the similar thing in europe we're seeing it across the globe so globally we are seeing uh governments step in and and propose and pass bills that are centered around cybersecurity for not only healthcare but critical infrastructure as a whole and that's that's probably the boost and the kick to be honest needed for manufacturers for all these different industries that again were Hands off that, hey, cybersecurity is your problem, but I'm not going to do anything to really help out because I'm certifying it as is. It's really a wake up call that now you guys are responsible and you guys need to be part of the cybersecurity effort across the world.
0: I'd like to thank Mohamed wakas for talking about his experiences with IoT and healthcare. Hey, I'm just getting started with error code. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon or at robertvamosi on Twitter. And tell me what you like and even what you don't. I've got some great episodes coming up, including one on the IoT-based Zodnost botnet. Subscribe today on your favorite podcast platform. I don't want you to miss out.